my biggest regret and my biggest apology is that we didn't do outing earlier and target more homophobes and hypocrites. Okay. Uh, that would that would have changed the, the 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 whole framework of the debate much sooner and got law reform much faster. Hi, Peter. Great to join you. Thanks so much for coming on the uh, on the podcast. It's a real pleasure to to have you on. Um, for those who have seen the documentary um, "Hating Peter Tatchell" on Netflix now you'll um, hopefully have a really good appreciation of, of Peter's life at this stage um, and his, his, his sort of campaigning exploits over the years. For those who haven't seen it, go and watch it as soon as you've listened to this. Um, you, you definitely won't regret it. It's a really, really interesting hour and a bit on Peter's life, um, especially if you've got a kind of campaigning energy um, as, as Peter does. Um, you, you'll, you'll get a real insight into the what it takes, what it takes to sort of sacrifice for the for the greater good. I think Peter em embodies that in, in in huge amounts. So Peter, thank you so much for coming on uh, the podcast. Um, so I want to start with the beginning where the documentary starts, which is kind of the chronology of your life, and we go into the campaigning. So you're born in um, Melbourne. You lived there for the first eighteen years or so of your of your life. Um, and when you were at school, you showed an early. Um, sort of campaigning zeal where you took on the establishment, you were voted head boy, despite being known as kind of a radical left winger and also by some boys as, as gay. How did you end up becoming head boy with that sort of um, baggage, as it were? And talk to me a little bit about how you took on this on the school at the time. Well, pretty much from the get go, when I went to high school, um, I questioned everything. <laughs> I didn't take anything for granted including some aspects of the way in which the school was run. So together with others, we championed the idea of a student's representative council, whereby every form would elect a pupil who would join this council and would make decisions and recommendations to the headmaster and to the staff. And we secured a lot of successes. You know, we changed, for example, um, the food in the tuck shop you know, in the school canteen. We got much better food. Um, we organized planting trees um, around the school grounds um, as part of a commitment to you know, the environment. Uh, this is way back in 1960, early 1960s as well. Um, so as a result of that work, um, you know, when it came to uh, deciding uh, who the uh, prefects of the school should be, traditionally it had been done by or chosen by the staff and the headmaster. But we decided that living in a democracy, just as you know, people elect members of parliament, our head boy and head girl, and indeed all the prefects, should be elected by a vote of the pupils. Um, so as a result of my work you know, defending the right of students, um, in 1968, I was elected as the male school captain uh, by a vote of all the boys in the school which amounted to about 500 boys. Which I, I guess is um, a really impressive thing with the kind of, like I said earlier, the kind of the left-wing baggage um, and the fact that you were, you were, you know, you were discussed as being gay, which at the time you, in the documentary, you say you wouldn't have called yourself that, you didn't know you were that at the time, um, which is quite, which was quite an achievement. But it's, it seems to me when I listen back and I compare myself to you at that kind of age, which talking like, 16 are we talking 16 17 at this age um 16 yeah 
I was quite rebellious at school, but I didn't take that next step to being a kind of a campaigner, really. I guess mine was kind of kind of a juvenile, teenage, rebellious sort of vibe, whereas you seemed quite grown up. You were making the case for Aboriginal people in Australia. You were um, taking the step from actually moaning or, or, or talking about something to actually acting on something. So you were quite a grown up teenager, were you? <laughs> Others will be the judge of that, but you, you're right. I mean, uh, together with other pupils, um, I heard about the fact that uh, young Indigenous Aboriginal Australians were leaving school at the minimum age um, because their parents needed them to work and earn an income. And I thought this was a terrible shame because education is the key to the upliftment of any community. Yeah, yeah. So we came up with the idea of fundraising to um, finance scholarships, okay. which would pay for Indigenous Aboriginal kids to stay on at school yeah. so they could get qualifications, which would not only ensure that they had a decent job and income, but would also hopefully help uplift their communities as well. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I can remember being denounced by the headmaster as being manipulated by the communists. <laughs> um, I very robustly defended us saying, you know, we were supporting Aboriginal Indigenous rights mm -hmm. um, and education. And he, he as a head should understand the importance of education. Mm -hmm. um, and then I had nothing whatsoever to do with communism. No, I, it's, it's interesting that even back then, things don't change today. Like you just you throw out the lazy kind of trope of, oh, if you're trying to do something that's sort of socially conscious, you're a communist or you're a Marxist or something. It's the same lazy stuff you hear in the Express and the Sun all the time today. Um, it's, it's strange, isn't it, how, how these things just always seem to work. But um, so my next question is about how um, you as a gay man, you 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 refused or, or you were reluctant to come out to your parents early on um, back in, in Australia. Uh, talk to me about why this um, was the case and what the situation was like for uh, gay men and women in um, Australia and the UK at, the, at this time? Well, back in my home state of Victoria, where Melbourne is the capital, uh, in the late 1960s and indeed until 1981, uh, homosexuality was a very serious criminal offence. Criminal offence. You could be yeah. jailed for several years and even forced to undergo compulsory psychiatric treatment on the grounds that you were sick. Right. So that was a pretty scary atmosphere. Mm. Plus, there was very widespread queer bashing violence and harassment and even violence by the police as well. Mm. Um, there were no gay organisations back then not even any helplines or switchboards, right. absolutely nothing. So for me to realize I was gay was uh, a big step, but as soon as I had my first same-sex experience, I was totally comfortable with it, uh, which is quite amazing given my very intense and quite fundamentalist Christian upbringing, mm. uh, where homosexuality was seen as a, as a, as a major sin. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, I, I just thought, well, I'm not harming anybody. You know, I love this man. Um, the sex is great. You know, we care for each other. Uh, no one has been harmed. There's been nothing that hasn't been consensual. Mm -hmm. So what's the fuss about? Mm. Yeah. And that motivated me in 1969 to begin my one-person campaigning 
for LGBT plus rights, because in the absence of any LGBT plus organizations back then, uh, one person campaigning was all that I could do. Mm-hmm. So you were so compelled even at that stage that you were like, I'm, go- I'm just going to go out there and just, I mean, were you concerned about getting a criminal record? Were you concerned about being forcibly um, enrolled in psychiatric treatment? Were you concerned your parents might grash you into the authorities? I mean, were you, were you anxious about all of this stuff or were you just throwing yourself in and not really listening to too much what was going on around you? I mean, how are you feeling at this time? No, I was very anxious and even quite afraid. Yeah. Know? When I wrote letters to newspapers, criticizing homophobic press reporting or making the case for the decriminalization of homosexuality. Initially, I didn't dare sign my name right. or give my address yeah. Yeah. because I feared a policeman's knock on the door. Yeah. Uh, it took me several months before I summoned up the courage to give my name and address. Yeah. But even then, I, I, I was nervous. You know, yeah. I, I still thought that, that maybe um, the newspaper might turn over my details to the police and that I get, could get charged with um, a homosexual offence and end up in prison. Was there ever a moment in your mind where you just decided, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a, almost like a martyr, I'm, I'm going to sacrifice my safety, my freedom, my liberty? Was there a moment where you, where you crossed that threshold? Because I think for a lot of people, I mean, I'm, I'm really concerned about the climate emergency, but I refuse to get arrested for Extinction Rebellion because I'm a school teacher and I can't have a criminal record. And, I, and I've got a lot to sort of lose, as it were, if I, if I cross that threshold, even though I'm, I'm terrified of it, I'm still, as a campaigner, I still try to remain on the lawful side of stuff. Was there a moment where you went from being a lawful mindset to being um, a kind of like, I'm going to cross this threshold and become a kind of work in the kind of anti-law area. What, can, can you remember a moment or was it what, was there no moment? Well, first of all, I've never wanted to be a martyr. No, okay. Martyrs end up dead. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, but, you know, very early on, I decided that some things were so wrong that they needed to be challenged, even if it meant peacefully and nonviolently breaking the law. Okay. So at the time, uh, in the late 1960s, Australia was fighting alongside America in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. You know, I studied that war and realized that it was very unjust that American and Australian forces were committing war crimes uh, against the people of Vietnam. And that was wrong. And therefore, I wasn't prepared to sign up for the draft for Vietnam. Mm. And moreover, I was involved in a campaign to encourage other young men to refuse the draft. And that was a criminal offense. Mm. punishable by up to two years in prison if you encourage men to not sign up and register for the draft. Yeah. But I did that because I felt this war was so wrong, so unjust, so immoral. Is that, that's really interesting because um, you've, you've already gone um, from talking about Aborigines, um, Aboriginal people in, in Australia, um, already gay rights and now the Vietnam War. So you're, you're kind of, you're already campaigning it on lots of kind of different fronts. So it, it seems to me, and I think I have a little bit of this as well, is you see an injustice and you can't help but want to go and do something about it. I mean, is that, 
is that is that nature nurture i mean how how do you explain this is it part of your character instinct instinctively or is it something that being around certain people brings you in i mean how can you explain that because not many people are like that well i don't quite know how and why but i can tell you this um my parents were very devout evangelical pentecostal christians mm. you know pretty much borderline fundamentalist. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they had a very strict, you know, devout um, attitude towards life. But the one thing they did teach me, which I think probably stood in good stead, was that we all have a personal responsibility for what we do or what others do in our name. So they taught me to stand up for what is right. Don't follow the crowd. Don't go along with the consensus. Think for yourself and follow your conscience. Do what is right. Now, of course, they meant that primarily in a religious sense, mm. but I interpret it much more broadly. Mm. So, you know, when you know Australia was fighting in Vietnam, you know, I thought for myself, I did the research, I realized the war was wrong, and that prompted me to campaign against it and against the draft as well. Now, you know, I suppose you could also say that I drew on some of the more liberal aspects of Christian teaching. So, you know, love thy neighbor as thyself. Um, I am my brother and sister's keeper. Mm. Uh, be a good Samaritan. Mm. I suppose those kinds of Christian values have stayed with me. Of course, they're not exclusively Christian, but no. that's how I came across them. Yeah. So, so solidarity, um, being on the right side of history, sticking up for the little man, um, thinking for yourself. I mean, you're obviously, you're a member of the Humanist UK, aren't you? And these are very much humanist values as well, aren't they? I mean, let's be honest, think for yourself, act for everyone, I think is the, is the kind of the humanist motto. Um, and I see that in, in you in, in, in great detail. Um, I want to move on because we've got a lot to talk about. So talk to me about the Gay Liberation Front. So this is this is an organization um, that spanned both America and, and the UK. You were part of the UK um, version of the Gay Liberation Front. Um, talk to me about who they were, why they uh, were set up and what your role in uh, this organization was. Well, the London Gay Liberation Front was really a watershed moment in British LGBT plus history. Um, for the first time, not dozens, hundreds, but thousands of LGBT plus people came out and protested in the streets to demand our liberation. Uh, this had never happened before. Hmm. And we were making demands that went way beyond the decriminalization that had taken place in part, it was only a very limited decriminalization, in 1967 in England and Wales. We were talking about the media misrepresentation and demonization of LGBT plus people. We were challenging the laws that allowed landlords and employers to discriminate against LGBT plus people. Mm -hmm. uh, we were taking on the church and other religious institutions over their homophobia, biphobia and transphobia. And really none of these things had happened before. Mm. And you know, we were very proud and defiant. We weren't apologetic, we weren't defensive, we weren't pleading for our rights, we were demanding them. Mm. And the Gay Liberation Front did not succeed in changing any law, <laughs> despite our efforts, 
because society was so homophobic at the time and parliament, the government and MPs were so homophobic, it was impossible. But what we did was change LGBT plus consciousness from victims to victors right. to end that internalized shame and self-hatred, mm -hmm. to be proud of who we were, to demand victory uh, in our struggle for LGBT plus liberation. And we also, of course, changed wider public consciousness, you know, organizing the first gay pride parade in Britain in 1972 in London. That was a real watershed moment because yeah. we were there on the streets, visible, proclaiming our space, our right to public space, our right to equality and non-discrimination. And that began to shift public consciousness. So the gains were really transforming the LGBT plus mindset and also changing public consciousness. Those are the two really big gains and successes of the Gay Liberation Front. Yeah, I, I think um, when I was reading about the Stonewall riots, um, what was was the Gay Liberation Front um, in the UK kind of um, spawned from the the Stonewall riots that happened in America a, a few years before? Is that is that kind of the transition? Is that how, how it happened? Well, not quite. What ha what happened was in the wake of the Stonewall riots in New York in 1969, the Gay Liberation Front was established in New York. Yeah, a few what couple of months or so later. Yeah. Um, then people in Britain heard about this and two students, Aubrey Walter and Bob Mellors, went to the United States, met with Gay Liberation Front activists right. and then brought those ideas back to Britain. Right. And they called the first meeting at London School of Economics, which led to the formation of the London Gay Liberation Front. And were you there at the very beginning then? No, I wasn't. No, I, I came several months later. Several I, months. I was still, okay. Yeah, I, I was still in Australia at the time. Okay, okay. But you were there at the beginning-ish. You know, you were. You didn't come along years later. You were there. No, no, no. I, 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 I joined. You know, the Gay Liberation Front was set up in London in uh, late 1970, and I uh, joined in the summer of 1971. Okay, okay, okay. Cool. Um, the, well, one of the things I was reading about was that the Gay Liberation Front in America, it was. Um, anti-capitalist, pro-Black Panther Party, um, it, it attacked the nuclear family and traditional gender roles. Um, what was the decision behind it to have this kind of left-wing um, identity? Um, was, it, was it just that they wanted to be anti, completely anti-establishment across the board? Was that the wisest thing? Because I know that Black, the Black Lives Matter organization now gets attacked for, by the right for the same kind of, oh, it's Marxist, it's anti-capitalist, it, blah, blah. Um, does that not just open up another attack route for its enemies to say, oh, look, they're anti-capitalist, um, oh, look, they support this this movement over here, which which we don't like as well? Or, or could it have been a bit more focused and, and just left all the kind of the rest of the politics aside? Was that core to its identity? Did it have to be kind of left-wing in that in that sense? Well, we didn't really see it so much as left-wing as human rights and liberation for all. Okay. You know, we, we very much recognize that we as LGBT plus people experience a particular 
and acute form of discrimination, even persecution. But we also recognize that so did other communities. So the London Gay Liberation Front aligned with the Women's Liberation Movement, the Black Liberation Movement, right, okay. the Irish Liberation Movement, right. and the struggles of working class people and trade unions. Yeah. Um, we saw our different social movements having an interest in working together and supporting each other. Yeah. Courage speaks so to courage everywhere. That, that kind Sorry? of courage speaks to courage everywhere, that kind of suffragette motto. Absolutely. And we thought that if if we helped these other movements and, and stood in solidarity with them, then they would reciprocate with us. And did they? In, in often cases they did. Yeah. Not always, not always, because no. the climate was very homophobic and some of these other social movements imbibed that homophobia. Yeah. But you know, regardless. Um, we felt we should do the right thing. And so, for example, we, we went on the Troops Out of Ireland marches. Um, some of our members in the London Gay Liberation Front were Irish or of Irish descent. And, you know, all of us objected to the way in which the British Army was uh, engaged in Northern Ireland and had been involved in multiple human rights abuses, particularly the massacre of 14 innocent unarmed civilians in Derry, in 1972, um, and we, we, even though the many in the Irish community were very homophobic, we thought, regardless, we will stand up for what is right. Mm -hmm. And you know what the British Army is doing in Northern Ireland is wrong. So we took a stand. Um, the other thing that's distinctive about the Gay Liberation Front was that the word equality never passed our lips. We were into liberation. We did not want to be equal with straight people in a fundamentally flawed and unjust society. We recognized that what was required was a social transformation. Mm -hmm. And the reason we said that was because, you know, straight people often had a bad deal. You know, take sex and relationship education in schools, which the Gay Liberation Front championed. Um, it wasn't very good back then. In fact, it was very bad back then for straight kids. Mm. So we didn't want equally bad sex and relationship education for yeah. LGBT yeah. pupils. Yeah. We wanted better sex and relationship education for all young people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that, that's, that's typical of the way in which we yeah. had, a, had a, a bigger, broader, wider agenda, more than just equal rights. Yeah. yeah so another, you... facet, another facet of the London Gay Liberation Front was that we recognize what is now called intersectionality. Now, we were doing this five decades ago. Hey. Um, we recognize we aren't just gay. Mm -hmm. We are male or female or intersex or trans, uh, bisexual. Um, we are black and white. We are rich and poor, young and old. Some live in London, some live in other parts of the country. So we recognize that, you know, People don't just have one identity, they have multiple identities. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's no good winning just LGBT plus rights for a disabled person if the law discriminates or the law makes it hard for them to get benefits. We want to change the laws to enable disabled people to have better rights, full stop, whether you're gay, straight, or whatever. Well, I'm glad I'm glad that someone was out there to change the norms of society and not just, like you say, gain equality and fit into a flawed system. So um, 
thanks, Peter. I was going to say thanks, thanks so much for being part of that struggle because that was a much more ambitious um, um, struggle, wasn't it? I suppose you could have just, you know, done done the easier thing and just said, please, 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 let us be equal with you guys, um, and we would have carried on living in a in a deeply flawed society. But you um, you went the you went the next step and tried to change society for the better, and I think you have. I mean, as a school teacher, when I speak to the sort of lads now who I imagined 30, 40 years ago would have been extremely homophobic. Um, there is immense solidarity now among the kind of like laddie lads, you know, at school with LGBT plus um, students. There is virtually no sort of ardent um, homophobia. There's the there's kind of more soft homophobia with the use of the word gay and stuff, you know, that sort of stuff. But to be honest, there is and a real consciousness around it now and, 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 and actual education and understanding about these things. So for me, Gen, Gen Z um, are, are quite impressive on, on, on this front um, as a school teacher. It does, it does make me quite proud when I, when I reflect on, on where we are with those guys. And that's, that's you know, massively down, down to your work as well. Um, I want to move on again. So the World Youth Festival, 1973, you went out there. This is East uh, Berlin, so communist um, side of the, of the Iron Curtain at this stage. Um, Tell me about what, what you did here, because you went out there and you caused a bit of a fuss. What did you do? What happened? Well, I heard that this uh, World Festival of Youth and Students was going to take place in Communist East Berlin in 1973, uh, where upwards of 140,000 students and young people from all over the world would go. I thought this is a fantastic opportunity to spread the ideas of LGBT plus liberation, uh, particularly to those coming from countries uh, that were ruled by communist regimes, which were mostly universally very, very homophobic. Mm. So I managed to get myself uh, accredited as a member of the British delegation and went there and staged a series of protests. Um, I, I planned uh, to uh, lay a pink triangle wreath at Sachsenhausen concentration camp in memory of the gay and bisexual men who were interned there and often murdered there. Um, but that was vetoed by the East German authorities who said, the people will not understand it. So as a compensation, I was given uh, the right to speak at a, a youth rights conference. Um, but as soon as I began speaking about LGBT plus liberation, all the microphones went dead. Um, and this is a, to a packed audience of maybe 500 or 1,000 young people right. um, for, from all different countries. Yeah. Um, they asked me to leave the podium. They said, your speech is over now, please leave. Um, I refused. Um, the audience you know, had, had a, saw this spark of rebellion. And many of them were coming from communist countries had never, ever seen it before. And they started jeering and, and hand, slow hand clapping in support of my right to speak. Um, so eventually I was allowed to speak and, um, you know, I got the message out, as I say, to maybe several hundred or more young people from different countries, including communist ones. Mm -hmm. um, on another occasion, I handed out leaflets about gay liberation that I'd smuggled into East Germany um, and got arrested by, well, I think that, there were a combination of police and secret police uh -huh. um, who confiscated them and, and tried to arrest me. Um, but there were some other members of the British delegation there. And um, I was the subject of a tug of war between the East Germans and the British delegates. 
um, and eventually with press people around and photographers, um, these Germans decided the better of it to um, avoid bad publicity and yeah. they let me go. Yeah. So without um, the media there, that, that could have ended quite differently. It, it could have, yes. Yeah. And on the final day um, of the festival, every organization attending was asked to make placards or banners representing their cause and their organization. So I made one uh, in support of gay liberation uh, on one side in English and on the reverse side in German. Um, I, I was eating a meal at a restaurant um, when I was approached by members of the Stasi, the secret police, who told me I would not be allowed to march with that placard. Someone had apparently tipped them off that I'd made the placard back at the British delegation's headquarters. Oh, um, so I wasn't going to take that. So I, 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 you know, jumped over tables and scarfed out, scarfed out the back door of the restaurant, ran into the crowd and sort of crawled across the, 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 the open plaza on my hands and knees so they couldn't see me among the crowd. And then eventually popped up uh, among the British delegation. But some of them were very homophobic and they physically violently attacked me. I was punched and kicked and spat at. Wow, by they your ripped the, They ripped the placard. Um, and um, in the end, I, I had to be spirited away um, by some very brave young communists in East Germany, uh, gay young communists, um, who were shadowing me throughout to make sure I wasn't harmed. Right. Uh, they'd witnessed what had happened and, and they spirited me away to uh, a secret hiding place and then I waited a few hours and got my bags and then I went back to East Berlin. Amazingly, I, I was allowed through the checkpoint. As I was going through, I was shaking with nerves, thinking I was going to get arrested yeah, yeah. and end up in prison for many years. But yeah. no, it didn't happen. Wow. I mean, some might say that that was quite reckless, quite a reckless decision to to defy the Stasi. I mean, they had quite a bad reputation, the Stasi as well. I mean, they weren't people that you would necessarily uh, and take on without without you know um so you decided to just was it a, was it a sort of in the moment was it a kind of rush of blood or, or were you just so determined to get this message out there what was it was it just that sense of solidarity and, and wanting to help other people or i mean how how can you explain that decision because i think it, it takes an incredibly brave person to do something like that doesn't it well it was a sense of solidarity and sort of duty you know i knew that <laughs> gay liberation ideas were not known about at all in the communist bloc of countries, okay. Russia, East Germany, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Bulgaria, Romania, Poland, and so mm -hmm. on. So I, I saw this as, as absolutely something imperative that I needed to do okay. to stand in solidarity with LGBT plus people in those countries. Um, and I knew there were risks, but I calculated that during the festival, um, there would be media there, and that East German authorities probably would not want bad publicity. Uh, plus, of course, I had the protection, sort of, of having a foreign Western passport. Yeah. And yeah. Um, that, that gave me some, some protection. So it was a big gamble. It, it could have ended up very differently and, and quite ugly. You know, I, people yeah. said at the time, you know, I could have ended up serving several years in an East German prison. Mm. But luckily, it didn't happen. No. Um, I mean, Bravo and well and and uh, I mean your I think your courage um, is 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 just 
really moving actually I, when i was watching the documentary and I, I know it's kind of a documentary that's supposed to bring you in a you know a motive um that's supposed to so it's supposed to elicit that that emotive response but i mean as a, as a sort of like campaigner but obviously not on the kind of as radical as you um it just kind of makes me just it inspired me actually watching a documentary I, I found it really inspirational um and we we do need people to rock the boat um because you get you just get results by doing that i mean I was involved in the Brexit campaigning with the Remain community and we didn't rock the boat and, and, and we lost. Um, and I feel like at times you probably did need some people to rock the boat, but we just didn't really have it in our community. One of the things we we're probably missing. Um, well, it's great that you got that from the film. I mean, one of the reasons why I collaborated with the filmmaker, Christopher Amos, was to show that social change is possible and these are some tips or ideas on how you can do it. Mm. So I want to inspire a new generation of change makers and activists. Mm. And I, I think you'll have done that. I think yeah. you'll have done that. And also, I've got to say that, you know, I take my inspiration from others, you know. Of course. Um, you know, we all stand I on the shoulders of giants, don't we? Absolutely. And, you know, I've taken some risks, but nothing by comparison to the risks of human rights offenders in Russia, of Zimbabwe, yeah. Saudi Arabia, or Uganda. Yeah. Um, they daily risk their lives and liberty. Um, so, you know, if they can do that, then I can take a few risks as well. Yeah, I actually have a question on that. So we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. But um, I want to move on now to the, the Bermondsey by-election, because this is a really pivotal moment in your kind of, I guess, in your career, in your, in your journey as a campaigner and stuff. Um, so the Bermondsey by-election, uh, what year was this? 1980, was it? 1980? 83. 83, 83, cool, yeah. Um, oh yeah, of course, I've got it written down right here. Um, so by-election's cool. This was, a, this was a safe Labour seat, um, South East London, and you're selected as the, as the Labour candidate for, for the Bermondsey by-election. You're up against the Liberal um, or the, the Liberal SDP candidate at the time, um, whose name I've got written down here. Simon Hughes. Uh, Simon Hughes, who later became, or was now the Chancellor of LSBU and later became the um, the deputy leader of the Lib Dems in the coalition, so was became a big name um, in Parliament. You lost um, that by-election. Why did you lose that by-election? Tell me, tell me about the, tell me about what happened, and tell me about why you think you lost it, and tell me about the the, the, the atmosphere during that by-election because fame is a very famous story. This isn't it. Yeah. Well, most commentators say that uh, the Bermondsey by-election was probably the dirtiest, most violent, and definitely most homophobic election in Britain since 1945. <laughs> and no other by-election has come near it, although, of course, Batley and Spen recently had echoes of it. Mm. Um, you know, in that election, uh, I was up against four fascist candidates. Um, and, of course, um, Simon Hughes, the Liberal Democrats, um, and uh, John O'Grady, who was, quote, the real Labour candidate. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, when I, was um, I was pilloried in a, a very xenophobic campaign because I was born in Australia. Right. I was also vilified because of my left-wing policies and ideas, which were denounced as extremists. <laughs> but I've got to tell you, the extremist ideas that I was condemned for are now the mainstream. I was arguing in favor of a national minimum wage. <laughs> That's been the Crazy. law for years. Crazy. Um, I argued in favor of a comprehensive equality act to protect everyone against discrimination. Mm -hmm. It happened in 2010. 
Mm -hmm. um, I argued for a negotiated political settlement in Northern Ireland to end the war there. It had happened with the Good Friday Agreement. Yep. So all my extremist ideas that I was absolutely vilified for are now the mainstream. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, um, I was also subjected to an incredible hate campaign because I was gay and supported LGBT plus rights. I think my proposals for LGBT plus rights set out in 1983 were at the time the most radical and comprehensive of any political candidate, even then, or it probably since. You now I went into incredible detail about every different aspect of um, anti-LGBT plus discrimination uh, and proposed laws to change that. Um, so yeah, I, I was hit by the triple whammy of xenophobia, um, uh, anti-socialism and homophobia. And you touch a little bit, a, a tiny bit, I wish you'd gone into a little bit more detail, I guess you didn't have time, on the, on the role of the media. And you talk about how the kind of the drip, 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 there wasn't a specific single headline or, or article. It was just, it was just the volume. Um, so, w I mean, are we, are we talking about the right-wing papers? We're talking about Sun, Mail, Express, Telegraph, are these are the sorts of outlets, or, you, or, or is it, was it the BBC? Who, can you name names? Can you say who were the kind of the, the, worst, the worst people in, in, involved in this? Yeah, it was mostly the tabloids, like yeah. the Sun, Daily Star, News of the World, News of the World, of course, um, yeah. Daily Mirror, uh, Daily Mail. You know, okay. they were the they were the main offenders. But okay. see, I was selected as the Labour candidate in November, nineteen eighty one, and then there was a fifteen month lead up to the by election in February nineteen eighty three, and throughout the entire time, there was a non stop drip 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 of negative, hostile, and sometimes even fabricated stories by the tabloid press. But even so, when the by-election was finally called um, in early 1983, opinion polls still put me on 47% support. Uh, the nearest rivals were about 18 or 20%. So I was way, way, way ahead. Mm -hmm. But in the weeks of the actual campaign, the media assaults became ever more extreme. And that's why in the end, uh, in large part, I lost the election. Now, of course, some people may disagree with me and they may think, you know, a, a person born in Australia is unfit to be an MP. They may think that a national minimum wage will cause the collapse of society. They may believe that homosexuality is a sin and queer people are perverts. But, you know, <laughs> whatever. I lost that election big time. Mm -hmm. And it was you know, the biggest election losses for Labour ever. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about the role of the, the, the Liberal SDP um, literature that was put out. And I know that you got um, an apology later um, for one piece of literature, I think, that said something like um, they used the, the phrase straight choice. Now, was this a kind of double entendre? Was this a kind of subtle homophobic dig at you was were the were the um were, were the op, were, were the were your op opposition actually um using negative tactics there do you think well undoubtedly uh leaflets for simon hughes and the liberals uh described the election as a straight choice yeah and many people interpreted that as a dig at me being gay and supporting lgbt plus rights yeah um also of course um liberal male liberal canvassers went out on the doorsteps with 
stickers, lapel stickers with the words, I've been kissed by Peter Tatchell. And lots of liberal... Sorry? What, what, what were they trying to... I don't understand that. Why would they, what was that trying to do? Well, they were trying to draw attention to the fact that I was gay. Oh, right, okay. Yeah. And uh, equally, a lot of liberal canvas canvases would say things on the doorsteps like, oh, we don't care if Peter Tatchell's gay. We don't care if he supports gay rights. But of course, they did care very much. Mm. They, were, they were using that language to plant in the voters' minds that I was gay right. and supported gay rights. Right. Right. Clearly to appeal to base emotions mm -hmm. and homophobic electors. Yeah. And indeed, the evidence shows that a substantial part of the vote against me and for Simon Hughes was by people who had a hatred of gay people. Mm. Uh, ironic, because Simon Hughes eventually came out many years later as being bisexual. I, I saw this, yeah. Yeah, ironic. Um, I, I used to live in Exeter and we have Ben Bradshaw down there, um, the Labour MP, and I remember um, he came and did a talk for the students uh, when I was studying there, and he spoke about how he got elected in 1997, um, so this was obviously way after your attempt to get elected, um, and even the campaign that he had to run um, against the Conservative and also against the former Labour MP before him was incredibly homophobic, and I think he, I think he was the first out um mp or something um from what from what i remember but even i, th I think i think stephen twig was in okay 1987 i think okay okay but, but I, I remember ben basically saying that, that he he had to go through a huge amount of homophobic anti-campaigning against him as well even in 97 so it showed that they were still trying to use the same things you know 10 years later or so um but so the next question i have um Ian McKellen says in the, in the document, you've got some really good people in there, Stephen Fry, Ian McKellen, um, some wicked people. He says that, was it better? Was it actually not better that you didn't win because we would have probably lost one of our greatest sort of provocateurs if you'd have become a sort of member of the establishment? I mean, would Peter Tatchell be a same familiar name? Would, would, he, would we have still have changed the world in the same way if he'd have been a member of parliament? What do you think? Well, of course... I wanted to be elected to Parliament so that I could take my LGBT plus and other social justice and equality campaigns into Parliament to get the law changed. That, that was my rationale. Mm -hmm. But had I been elected, I wouldn't have given up the protesting and campaigning outside of Parliament. Okay. You know, I, I'm very conscious that uh, nearly every social reform starts outside of parliament and that MPs are often the last people to get the message. So often it was often just the, jumping on public opinion at the last minute, really, isn't it? Sometimes. Yeah, exactly. You know, with the campaign to get women the right to vote, you know, it was begun by the suffragettes mm -hmm. outside of parliament. You know, it, it took a long time before parliament finally, you know, got the message, the penny dropped and they legislated those changes. So if I had been elected, I would have, most definitely continued the external campaigning as well. Um, but <laughs> as you say, many people have observed that perhaps I've been more effective as a ginger campaigner on the outside, you know, shaking up the establishment, doing provocative confrontational things that got people thinking and talking. Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe that was more effective and that I couldn't have done as much of that if I'd been uh, an elected member of parliament. And it's, it's hard to punch up if you're the up, 
Do you know what I mean? If, if you're the establishment, it's hard to be anti-establishment. Oh, I say that. I mean, Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage seem to seem to get away with it these days. It's very, very bizarre how they how they can be anti-establishment figures, even though they are the epitome of the establishment. Um, but the other thing I wanted to mention was the whole concept of the sort of the, the Overton window and shifting the Overton window. You have to have people who set far out and then shift what the norm is in the middle by 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 being that far out. And I guess that's kind of what your role has been, you've been kind of the flanking wing of a lot of campaigns where, I, I, we'll, we'll come to this in a second because I'm conscious that we're gonna run out of time otherwise, the difference between Stonewall and uh, what became outrage um, and the kind of the differences between those two camps in a minute, but we'll, 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 we'll come back, we'll circle back to that in a sec. Um, so just briefly, the, the 1980s, I was born in 1990, so anything I know about the 1980s, I have to watch documentaries about Peter Tatchell and stuff. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which is obviously very educational, but I don't have the emotional connection to it. So talk to me about the 1980s. Talk to me about um, what it was like for the LGBTQI um, plus community at that stage, the AIDS um, pandemic. And we're going to come on to Section 28 and Margaret Thatcher as well. But just talk to me about the kind of the atmosphere and what it was like being a gay man in, in Britain in, in the 1980s. Throughout the 1970s and early 1980s, the LGBT plus community was on a winning streak. Although we were not getting legislative changes, we were changing public hearts and minds, and we were changing the way in which institutions like the police and others treated us. Not by a long shot far enough, but we were moving down that road. Yeah. Um, the advent of the Greater London Council, led by Ken Livingstone in 1981, and other labour-run local authorities resulted in the first ever public funding for LGBT plus organisations. Um, that was a real breakthrough. It also meant that um, local authorities were for the first time providing facilities like meeting rooms for LGBT plus groups. Um, at that stage, um, public opinion was definitely moving towards greater acceptance of LGBT plus people. Then along came the election of Margaret Thatcher's Conservative government in 1983. And she began very quickly in succession two campaigns, a family values campaign and a return to Victorian values campaign, neither of which had any place for LGBT plus people. Then we had the AIDS pandemic where gay and bisexual men were vilified and scapegoated as a threat to the public health mm -hmm. and where tabloid newspapers and right-wing politicians dubbed AIDS quote the gay plague. Mm -hmm. It led to a massive increase in homophobic violence, a big increase in the arrest of gay and bisexual men by the police and just generally a very very toxic atmosphere of hostility towards our community. It, it really felt that like, like we were under attack. Yeah. It was like we were the enemy within. Mm. Mm. And indeed, uh, Margaret Thatcher uh, in 1987 at the Tory party conference openly and publicly attacked the right to be gay. I mean, it was absolutely shocking. You know, we, we felt a beleaguered community um, and it was so difficult to fight back because, of course, so many people in the LGBT plus community had switched away from LGBT plus activism towards AIDS activism and in particular 
to aid support services, help and funding for organizations like the Terence Higgins Trust, the then main uh, HIV organization in Britain. So we didn't really have the activist base initially to deal with all of these fight backs. And of course, the culmination was in 1988 with the legislation of Section 28, the first new anti-gay law in Britain for a century. Yeah, tell me about that. Um, what was Section 28? It was an amendment to the Local Government Act, which prohibited local authorities, i.e. local councils and local health and education authorities, from doing anything that could be construed as, quote, promoting homosexuality. And it was interpreted to mean anything positive, anything supportive at all. So it meant that um, schools refused point blank in most cases to offer any kind of support or counseling or affirmation for LGBT plus pupils. Um, homophobia was not challenged in the classroom. Mm. Um, it meant that um, local run facilities were withdrawn. So local teenage groups for LGBT plus kids were no longer allowed to meet on council premises like libraries or meeting halls. Um, the funding was pulled uh, from uh, organizations uh, representing our community. And indeed, you know, even quite extraordinary things, you know, locally run uh, art centers pulled uh, gay themed art exhibitions and gay themed wow. plays and films. Yeah. So it's right across society then, it wasn't just in schools. No, it was, it was much, much broader. Yeah. And of course, local health authorities wouldn't do anything to support, uh, or well, local authorities, local health authorities would do very little, if anything, to support gay and bisexual men in the midst of the AIDS crisis for fear that they could be construed as promoting homosexuality. Yeah. And, we, and we've seen a return to this in Europe at the moment with in Poland and Hungary. Um, and obviously Russia is a famous example, isn't it? But we'll talk to, about Russia just in a minute. Um, are we seeing, do you think we're seeing any backsliding in, in kind of the West on, on LGBTQI plus um, issues? I mean, I know we've, we've gone a long way since then in this country and probably elsewhere in, in the kind of in the West. Um, and we can talk about globally, but do you think it's, it's scary seeing Hungary and Poland and, and Russia with these kind of Section 28-like laws coming in at the moment? Well, yes, of course, it's scary. And also it's outrageous to think that Britain <laughs> pioneered this kind of legislation. Mm. And that's where they got the idea from. They borrowed it from, from Margaret Thatcher's government. All right. uh, that's the toxic legacy that we have bequeathed to these countries. Yeah. Um, here in Britain, I wouldn't say there's a, 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 a backward slide, but there is definitely a stalling. So, for example, the government promised to outlaw LGBT plus conversion therapy three years ago. That's true. Yeah. And it still hasn't happened. No. Um, it promised to reform the Gender Recognition Act. And indeed, the overwhelming majority of people who corresponded to the government's um, consultation supported reform. But that's been kicked into the long grass. Mm. So right now, the real frontline issues are conversion therapy and trans rights. Yeah. And we've seen an incredibly toxic atmosphere here in Britain among large sections of the broadcast and print media and among right wing politicians. Um, trans people are deemed to be fair game. 
they're being vilified, demonized, and scapegoated in just the same way as gay and bisexual men were 30 years ago. That's interesting, because I have a gay friend, and I, I put this to him and said, do you see any parallels between how the trans community are treated today with how the homosexual community were treated 20, 30 years ago? And he said, no, no, it's totally different. They're totally separate um, spheres. Um, it's not really the same. So, but you're saying that it's, it's, it's very, very similar. It is. It is. There's very similar parallels. I mean, the kind of hate, misrepresentation, distortion, demonization, it, it's got very strong echoes. Yeah. And of course, trans people are different from LGBT. Uh, sorry, trans people are different from LGB people. But um, nonetheless, um, you know, we share a common experience of prejudice, discrimination and hate crime. Mm -hmm. And that's why we should stand together. Yeah. You know, we also, of course, are gender nonconformists, you know, LGB people and trans people, neither of us confirm to conform to the way um, traditionally men and women are supposed to behave. Mm -hmm. And that gives us a common interest. Yeah, of course. Um, I want to move on now to outrage. Who were outraged? You were part of outrage. And talk to me about how they were different to Stonewall, because you had two in the documentary kind of Stonewall is sort of um, depicted as kind of like a bit more moderate and um, rules orientated, whereas outrage are a bit more kind of, um, I guess, grassroots and sort of uh, witty and a little bit more outside of the outside of the rules. So talk to me about the two different uh, organizations and why you ended up becoming a central figure in outrage. Well, Stonewall was essentially a parliamentary lobbying group. Its focus was almost exclusively back then anyway, on law reform. Okay. It saw law reform as the key. Yeah. And of course, outrage saw law reform as important, but not the only front. Okay. We also, in the tradition of the Gay Liberation Front, sought to change the culture, to okay. change hearts and minds, yeah. to change the way in which institutions operated independently of the law. Um, we also, I think, had a different sort of model or, or or style of doing things. Um, you know, <laughs> Stonewall is often referred to as LGBT plus people in suits. Yeah. Um, outrage was very much um, a direct action group uh, committed to nonviolence and where necessary civil disobedience law breaking uh, in order to highlight injustices. Mm. Uh, many of us very explicitly mold ourselves on the black civil rights movement in America or the suffragettes here in Britain. Yeah, we saw we saw a vital role um, being protest to shake up the establishment mm. to do uh, bizarre, daring, challenging, confrontational protests that would get news coverage, and through that news coverage, raise public awareness about the scale of homophobic, biphobic, and transphobic discrimination, and also, of course, put the authorities under pressure to change. We understood very clearly that you can do things behind closed doors, but that's all in private. No one knows about it. Um, you know, when you lobby an MP or government minister, um, it isn't on public view. It isn't recorded. Um, it's a private thing, yeah. which has its place, but yep. it's, it's, it's very limited. Yeah. And uh, of course, uh, governments tend to respond most when their bad actions are highlighted through the media. Yeah. They don't want bad publicity. So outrage exploited that. Um, so the, the other next... difference, the on, other sorry, difference is, the other difference, big difference is, 
Um, Stonewall was really just committed to equal rights within the status quo. It basically accepted society as it is, but simply wanted equal rights for LGBT plus people within that society. Okay. Whereas outrage was much more critical and discerning. We had a, a skeptical view towards mainstream social institutions. They were not made by or for us. And to simply seek equality within what existed would be collusion with an unjust system. And it will also effectively be our assimilation into straight society. We affirmed in outrage the importance of acknowledging and defending our own culture and history of making our own demands uh, based on what we needed, not on what straight laws currently existed. And actually this brings us on neatly to uh, the next uh, question or two, which is about the, the sort of the controversies that the documentary covers, one of which probably the most prominent is the, the outing, the, force of, the forcible outing of, of prominent people, uh, many in the clergy. Um, I guess the question I have, I was watching it, and I, even I couldn't really make my mind up, um, whether the kind of the ends justified the means here. In the documentary, there are people who kind of throw various criticisms at you. Was it moral? Do you stand by what you did? Oh, absolutely. My biggest regret and my biggest apology is that we didn't do outing earlier and target more homophobes and hypocrites. Okay. Uh, that, would, that would have changed the, 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 the whole framework of the debate much sooner and got law reform much faster. Did you see them as collateral? Did you did did, did you care no, no. if no? No, no, they were not collateral. This is a very carefully worked out moral ethical tactic. You know, we did not out anyone because they were in the closet. We only targeted public figures who were abusing their power and influence to harm the LGBT plus community, okay. such as MPs who voted against LGBT plus equality, yep. or church leaders and others who spoke out against equality and in favor of discrimination. So it was highlighting the contradiction between what these people said in public, you know, being vocal critics of LGBT plus people and you know, defending straight family values, while at the same time hypocritically having same-sex relationships. So it was very much about targeting their two-facedness, their, their double yeah. standards. Yeah. And it, it was, for us, ethical self-defense of the queer community. Okay. We were defending our community against those who were doing us harm. And of, of the limited number of people who were outed, um, as far as I recall, none of them after being outed ever again said anything against our community, ever voted against our community, ever um, colluded with institutions persecuting us. You know, it, it made them sit up, take fright, and stop their persecution. So it was, it was, was, it was effective that, as well. It was effective, yeah. yeah. It, 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 it was effective. Outing was effective in, way, in ways in which no other tactic was. Okay. For the critics of outing, they would have happily let these bigots continue on persecuting us. Hmm. That would not have been an ethical decision. Yeah. Moreover, what I find so shocking is many of our critics, they lord the suffragettes who used violence, which we never did. They lord Nelson Mandela, who was spearheading a, a violent organization to overthrow apartheid by armed struggle, uh, which we never did. So there's a lot of hypocrisy in the way in which we are being singled out, outrage is being singled out 
for criticism over this issue. Do you think, I mean, this is some, because I'm, I'm a humanist as well, and I've, I've sat on um, various faith uh, councils and things. Um, and, and I find that if you, if you're deemed to be attacking something that's really sacrosanct, like religion, um, there's a, there's a deeper moral outrage among people um, in the UK. Do you think the fact that you went after the clergy, you went after the Church of England, you went after the Archbishop of Canterbury, this is an area which traditionally was off bounds really for criticism and for sort of radical campaigning. Do you think the fact that you went after them and their kind of position in our society as being kind of off limits, do you think that's one of the reasons why you got such bad press and, and, and you, you were attacked so much? I'm sure it is, you know, because a lot of people think the clergy are harmless. Yeah. They're not. Within the church, many, many LGBT plus people have either attempted or committed suicide because of the church's homophobic teachings. Yeah. You know, I know people who killed themselves because their church told them that they were immoral, sinful, unnatural, abnormal, and that they were going to burn in hell. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to sit back and allow the church or anyone else get away with doing that, you know, creating that atmosphere where young LGBT plus people end up killing themselves. You know, we've got to take a stand and religion should not be above criticism. In fact, since it upholds high moral standards, it should be held to an even higher moral standard. And as we all know, in the recorded teachings of Jesus Christ, discrimination is not a Christian value. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, I've, I've always believed in the idea that no belief is above criticism and no person is, is below dignity. I think that's a kind of a motto that, that, I, that always sticks in my head. Um, I want to move on to the attempted arrest of Robert Mugabe because it's quite comical in, in some ways because it seems so audacious. And um, I just, it, it, you've got to be, I guess, quite bold to come up with, a, with an idea of, of, of a citizen's arrest on a world leader. Talk to me about why you decided to do this and whether or not you think actually the, the two attempts, was it two attempts you had, mm-hmm. um, were effective um, as, as, as a means of kind of shining a light on, on what was happening there? Well, I was approached by human rights defenders inside Zimbabwe who pleaded with me to do something to try and highlight the human rights abuses within their country yeah. by the Mugabe regime. This was at a time when mostly the terrible things that were happening in Zimbabwe were not being reported in Western countries or indeed any countries. And when there was no international call for any sanctions or uh, travel bans against the Zimbabwean leaders. Now, in these circumstances, I thought, well, I've got to do something dramatic to get attention. Um, to shine a spotlight on the crimes of the Mugabe regime. So I simply hold a protest outside Zimbabwe House in London that isn't going to get any attention. Mm. So I hit on the idea of using the power of citizens' arrest uh, in conjunction with the British and international laws against torture, which means that any, any state official who commits, condones, authorises or acquiesces in acts of torture anywhere in the world can be put on trial in any of the 130 plus signatory countries to the United Nations Convention Against Torture. Yeah. So the big issue was how and when. <laughs> and so the first attempt was the result of a late night tip off 
that President Mugabe was in London, this is 1999, um, on a private Christmas shopping trip to Harrods. Um, and so myself and three members of Outrage ambushed his motorcade outside his hotel uh, near Victoria Station. Uh, we did so on charges of torture. I mean, Mugabe is homophobic, but that was not the issue on which we were seeking his arrest. Yeah, It was on the charge of torture that he had authorized and colluded with the torture of two black journalists, Ray Choto and Mark Chabanduka in the Zimbabwean capital, Harare. So we had an absolutely cast iron legal case. But unfortunately, um, when we summoned, we, when we, we, we ambushed his motorcade, uh, running in front of it, forcing it to halt, then one of us ran behind the car so it couldn't go forward and couldn't go backward. I ran from the left-hand side and unlocked the, uh, well, opened the unlocked uh, rear car door. I'm so, I was so surprised it was, was, wasn't locked right. uh, and reached in and then put Mugabe under arrest. Uh, you should have seen the look on his face. <laughs> he is very dark skinned, but a visible ashen pallor came across his face. Uh, his jaw dropped, his eyes popped, I think he thought he was going to be killed, but I was holding out my arms and hands to show that I didn't have a weapon. Uh, and so I, I said he was under arrest. We then summoned the police. Uh, they were gobsmacked. It was the president of Zimbabwe in the car and we had him under arrest. Uh, but then they, they just ignored the legal case for his arrest under the torture convention uh, and proceeded to um, uh, arrest us. So we sent we were sent off or dragged off to Belgravia police station where we spent nearly seven hours while President Mugabe was given a police escort to go Christmas shopping in Harrods. The upshot of it was we did not succeed, but that arrest and the subsequent second arrest, which I attempted in Brussels two years later in 2001, made, well, made headlines all around the world. Yeah. And not just about the attempted arrest, but about the reason why we did it. Yeah. So it massively increased global public awareness about the terrible crimes against humanity by the Mugabe regime. Yeah. It shone a spotlight, which enabled politicians and campaigners all across the world to rally to support the Zimbabwean people in their struggle for democracy and human rights. Um, it also was a great psychological boost to people in Zimbabwe. Right. Um, that they, they told me things like, we thought no one knew, we thought no one cared. Mm. And as a result of what I did with my outraged colleagues in London and by myself in Brussels two years later, um, lots of people knew and understood and felt in solidarity with uh, Zimbabweans. Uh, uh, 1999 and then two years later, um, presumably at this stage, Mugabe is somebody who is still supported by the British state because he was initially kind of a puppet almost. He was he was he was an ally of ours in, in Zimbabwe. Um, by the time he he died, he was very much deemed um, as as a, as, a, as a brutal dictator. So was it just the case that you got there before everybody else and everybody else needed to catch up, or how how did it come to be that it was so obvious to you, but so unobvious, if that's the right word, to 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 everybody else? How how uh, how were you so far ahead of, of public opinion and, and political opinion at this stage? Well, I think that even many countries that did not support the Mugabe regime back in the 1990s 
uh, preferred just to look the other way. Okay. Um, they knew, they were, but they just didn't want to deal with it. Yeah, or, or they claimed they didn't know, but you know, I, I don't believe that. Right. Um, you know, that's why I had to do what I did because I just felt that this silence, this inaction, this looking the other way mm. had to be challenged, had to be exposed. Mm. Um, we needed a light to be shone on what Mugabe was doing to his own black people. Yeah. You know, Mugabe in Matabililand in the 1980s massacred up to 20,000 black Africans who were supporters of the opposition leader, Joshua Nakomo. Mm. 20,000. Mm. That is the equivalent of a Sharpeville massacre every day for nine months. Mm. Now, for those who don't know, Sharpeville was a horrendous massacre by the apartheid regime in South Africa in the 1960s. Mm. It has gone down in world history as one of the most ignominious um, human rights abuses of the modern era. But Mugabe, uh, just two or so decades later, was doing something even worse and nobody battered an eyelid. So that's that, why we that's why we had to act. Was it was it the racism of low expectations, as in black killing black is not newsworthy because that's what blacks are like, whereas whites killing blacks or blacks killing whites is newsworthy because whites are involved. Do you think there was there was that kind of racism of low expectations in, in the West? I am certain that there was a subtle, unconscious, or maybe even conscious racism at play that yeah. um, some people or a lot of people thought, well. Uh, it's just black people killing black people. Why should we care? Mm, mm. I, I, that, that view is so disgusting. So disgusting. Yeah. You know, it, it shows a lack of empathy, a lack of solidarity, a lack of awareness about what racism is. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. Um, I, I want to move on because we've still got quite a bit to talk about. Well, Russia 2018 woke up. You, in the documentary, you spend a good sort of 10 minutes of the, of, the, of the latter stage of the documentary talking about um, or, or going through your journey from um, being in the UK, being approached by um, Ru Russians um, who asked you to come and stand in solidarity with them in, in, in Moscow. So you go to Moscow, um, you protest there. Uh, the question I have for you is, in the documentary, it was really crucial that you went and gave these kind of confidential bits of paper to the media. Would you have done that had the media not shown up? Was it safe to do that? Is, is a big part of your campaigning reliant on the media's present? Well, absolutely. Going back to outrage, it's the same kind of philosophy. If you want to um, create change, you've got to make people aware of the injustice. And the most common and effective medium of raising public awareness is the media, you know, news reports. Um, you know, radio and TV programs, this is the way in which you communicate to a wider audience about an injustice. And until people know about an injustice, they won't be mobilized to speak out against it. So using the media uh, to shine a light on these abuses is absolutely critical for any successful campaign. Yeah. You know, you look at the, the Black Civil Rights Movement in America, it was absolutely vital that TV crews and photographers were present when Martin Luther King and others uh, staged their historic protests. Uh, it was only because of the media coverage that their heroism was uh, revealed. And indeed the injustices 
they sought to overturn were made clear. Yeah. And that's what put pressure on the authorities to change. Yeah. Because as always, the authorities who perpetrate injustice, um, they may be evil people and may, may do bad things, but they're very conscious about their reputation. You know, they're very conscious about their public image. Yeah. And bad publicity is bad for them. Yeah. So they want to avoid it. Yeah. And, you know, if bad publicity, for example, you know, about what Putin was doing in, in Russia and particularly what was happening to LGBT plus people in Chechnya, in Chechnya that yeah. bad publicity, which I helped generate when I staged the um, protest in the run-up to the World Cup uh, in 2018, um, that was very, very effective. It, it hard to say whether it had any effect on, on the actions of, of, of the governments of Chechnya or Russia. But what we can say is that uh, around that time, the reports of disappearances and torture seemed to dramatically reduce. Right. Now, that may or may not have had anything to do with um, that protest that I did. Uh, probably not, in fact. But, but regardless, what was important is that through my protest, hundreds of millions of people around the world watching TV and reading newspapers learned about the anti-LGBT plus witch hunts in Chechnya. I guess it must be really hard not to be able to quantify your impact, but just hopeful that it will filter through and there will be ripples and later down the line, history will look back and, and see, okay, Peter did this. And then a certain amount of time later, there was this change and maybe you can, there's, there's a correlation there, but does it, does it, do, do you ever feel like um, the fact that you can't quantify your impact um, is, is, is a difficult thing to stomach or, or do you just, hope that later down the line things will change as a result are you ever conscious of that that kind of like inability to quantify what you do well I'm, I'm conscious that it's very difficult often to precisely quantify what the impact of a protest has been yeah but i do know that the cumulative um collective effort of many different protests and lobbying and letter writing campaigns all taken together they do produce change, yeah. and you know which one precisely was the was the was the the key factor. It's always hard to tell, but yeah. Yeah. all throughout history, every progressive move for social change has used uh, protest and media events as a way of exposing tyranny and injustice. Yeah, and undoubtedly, it has had some impact and success. Yeah, um, what's been the reception of the documentary? A lot of people have said, hey, I never knew you've been campaigning for so long, or I never knew you campaigned on so many different issues. Yeah. And in, and in the documentary, the number of issues touched upon is actually quite small. Yeah. I mean, I've been involved in literally thousands of different campaigns over the last 54 years. And I think about a dozen or so are featured in the film. So yeah. it is just a snapshot of many decades of diverse campaigning. Um, I guess I was I was going to ask you this question um, earlier, but I think I read an article where you said it was a shame you didn't get an interview with Mike Tyson, um, because that would have really added an extra dimension to the, to the documentary. Just very, very quickly, just what, what was the whole thing with Mike Tyson? Because you, you 
you went and spoke to him and you you challenged him on on his homophobic views and he changed his views as a result of that conversation though yeah this was in the run-up to his world title fight uh, mike, mike tyson's world title fight against the british boxer lennox lewis yeah which was held in memphis tennessee um i heard about that title fight um and had also heard numerous examples of Mike Tyson's homophobic epithets yeah. against Lewis and yeah. indeed against other boxers previously. Yeah. I thought someone's got to call out this guy over his homophobia. So I traveled to Memphis. Um, when I arrived, um, I knew that Mike Tyson would be staying somewhere in the vicinity of Memphis. And by chance, I read a newspaper report which mentioned the suburb in which he was staying. Then I worked out he'd have to train in the days run leading up to the title fight. So he'd have to go to a gym. So I did a search and found the gyms in the, in the area. And there were some really like dinky winky ones, but there was one that really stood out as being a world-class professional gym. And I thought my hunch is that's where he'll go training. So on a Sunday morning, I turned up there with two local Memphis LGBT activists and, uh, we confronted him as he got out of his SUV to go into the gym. And I challenged him over his homophobia. Um, he initially uh, raised his fist as though he was going to clock me. My God. Uh, but then saw, the saw all the TV cameras and journalists and sort of, you know, relaxed a bit, uh, but very strongly protested that he wasn't homophobic. And I said, well, well why do you say those homophobic slurs? Mm. And he said, well, it's just to wind guys up. And I said, well, look, you know, you wouldn't like it if a white boxer used racist language to wind you up. And he's sort of like undenied and sort of conceded that point. Mm. So then I said to him, look, you know, if you're not homophobic, will you make a statement in support of LGBT plus rights? And so he did. He, he made a statement saying he opposed discrimination against LGBT plus people. Now, I think he, at the time, he was probably the first or one of the first uh, big macho uh, straight superstars to have ever done that yeah so um it's a great story of uh, redemption you know he, yeah. how he changed yeah, yeah. when challenged yeah and also a great story on your part about you know courage and you know i mean mike tyson's a fairly scary guy he bit someone's ear off you know in the ring for goodness sake um but i guess though if you're going to the kremlin and doing these things then you're, Mike Tyson might not be such a scary prospect after all I don't know but um no I mean that's that's fantastic and Mike Tyson is the sort of person with the kind of base that I guess you kind of want to reach as well isn't he like he's got he had so much influence back then I mean I think of someone like Anthony Joshua today the reason why he's such a a massive corporate star for for the corporate industry is because he reaches certain communities um as well which which you know politicians can't reach and campaigners can't reach so um, I, I can see why that would be what that must have been such a massive um, thing. La final two questions: Has the world caught up um, with Peter Tatchell? Um, because in in the documentary, it kind of says you've been. I think it's Ian McKellen who says you've just been proven right time after time after time, and it's actually been the world that's been catching up with you. Where do you see us now? Have have we caught up to where we need to be, Peter? With you with you yet? Well, certainly. My views, values, and methods have not changed much in the last five decades. And it's great to see the way in which Britain and the world, or parts of the world, have changed. Um, still, there are, what, 70 countries and jurisdictions that criminalize same-sex relations. Mm -hmm. 11 have the death penalty. Mm -hmm. But even within these countries, there are 
movements and change, um, often covert and secretive. But you know, with the internet and, and, and social media, it's impossible for tyrannies to block out the message of LGBT plus liberation. So I'm incredibly happy and proud that um, change has come and it is coming and will continue to come, although we still have a long way to go on the global stage. Yeah. So final question, um, what are you currently working on and what's the future for Peter Thatcher? Will we be seeing you uh, for, for decades longer? Well, uh, I'm 69 now. Uh, I hope to continue health willing for another 26 years or so. Maybe retirement about 95 might be appropriate. I'm not sure. Um, but I, I think I, I will be a, a campaigner at heart and, until the day I die. Yeah. Uh, and there are so many campaigns to fight and win, you know, still we have to defend the trans communities uh, in Britain and around the world. Still we have to fight to end uh, LGBT plus conversion therapy. Still we've got a battle here in Britain to secure an end to the detention and deportation of LGBT plus refugees and asylum seekers. There are so many battles still to fight and I'm game to keep going and fight them. Well, Peter, um, I think I speak for a lot of people when I say thanks so much for everything you do. Um, your documentary for me was really inspiring. Anyone who's listened to this who hasn't yet seen it, it's on Netflix. Go and watch it. Is, are there any other platforms where it's available? Or is it just Netflix? No. Just Netflix. Just, just Netflix. Just Netflix. Cool. Um, and good luck with all of your future campaigning. Uh, we can follow the Peter Tatchell Foundation, can't we, on social media? Um, yeah, well, you can follow me personally oh, yeah. at Peter Tatchell. Yep. Um, if you go on my foundation's website, which is www.petertatchellfoundation.org, um, you'll see a resume of all the different campaigns and activities we're doing. Uh, in the top right hand corner, there's a button which says join us. If you click on that and give us your email address, we will send you a weekly uh, bulletin about a range of LGBT plus and other human rights issues. Great. Most of them serious, but we usually have a funny or quirky one as well. Yeah. And it's totally free. There's no charge. So please sign up and become part of our little LGBT plus and human rights community. I will be doing that as soon as I as soon as we end this call. Peace, Satchel. Thank you very much. I'll finish with my motto, which hopefully will encourage and motivate your viewers. Um, don't accept the world as it is. Dream of what the world could be and then help make it happen. Love it. That's, the, that's the, the campaigning spirit, isn't it? That's the fire. You've got to have that. Peter, thank you. Thank you.